This is week number five, I think, week number five uh, of our series 2020. So it's the year 2020. It's hard to believe we're already through a first week of February of the new year, but here here it goes, right? Time just flies. I guess we're having fun. So it's 2020, and we're talking about 2020 vision, basically how to have perfect vision in your life, what that looks like and how to achieve that, and really what are the benefits of that. To do that, we've been going through the first three chapters of the last book of the Bible called Revelation. And again, we think of Revelation, we think about apocalypse, we think about end of the world type of stuff, all of the you know, imagery and numbers and futuristic visions that are there. We're focusing more, though, on the first three chapters, which are kind of its own little section. Uh, this Revelation is written by a man named John, who is one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. So John gets this vision or revelation of Jesus and of the future near the end of his life. He's exiled on an island called Patmos where he has been uh, sent there as a prisoner, basically, to end his days in isolation by the Roman government, by Caesar, just for him being a Christian and a pastor. So Jesus appears to him on this island in a vision and shows him all these things in the future that are yet to come, gives him a vision of the future. But before that, he gives him these messages to seven different churches, and that's what we've been looking at every week so far in this series. These seven churches are churches that John either started, uh, six of them he did, or that he just pastored. The one that we'll talk about next week, Ephesus, is the one that he did not start, but has a rich history, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. Uh, So today, we're looking at this church in a city called Philadelphia. So we know that Philadelphia is a city about 1.58 million people in the Northeast. Uh, It's the third largest city in the Northeastern area. Uh, They are home to the Philadelphia Eagles uh, football team. Oh, wait, wait. I have the wrong notes here. Wait, let me. No. So Philadelphia, we are familiar with that name because we do have a city in our own country with that name. Philadelphia is actually in this same region, uh, what would be now in West Central Turkey in the Middle East, uh, and it's, it's a different name now, but that's, that's what it was called up, up until a few hundred years ago even. So the name Philadelphia you probably know means brotherly love, and I'll give you sort of how that came about. So the king of Pergamum, his name was Eumenes, and I'm not calling Eumenes, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. That's his name. Uh, He was the king of Pergamum, which is a different city we've already talked about in this series. So he's the king of Pergamum, and he founded a brand new city, and he named it Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, because he and his younger brother, Attalus, were like BFFs. They were brothers that loved each other. Let me give you a story about how how true that is. So uh, Eumenes, he was actually... He had just gone into battle or won a battle. He's coming back from the Roman, like the main part of the Roman Empire, back to his kingdom in Pergamum. And he's attacked on his way back home and he's presumed dead. So his younger brother Attalus is still there in Pergamum and they kind of rule over these two cities. He rules over both of these cities. So because he loves his brother so much, he does what is culturally uh, acceptable and right in this case. He marries his sister-in-law, which is kind of weird now, but that's what you did back then, okay? So he marries his brother's widow and takes over the throne because he loves his brother that much. He said, I'm going to step in and I'm going to lead this thing like he would have wanted. Come to find out, his brother Eumenes was not dead because he happens to show up and they think he's dead in this attack. He shows up. And so Atlas now has a choice to make. How much do I really love my brother? Because I like being king quite a bit. 
I like this new life of royalty quite a bit. And so because they have this intense love for each other, Adelus abdicates the throne to the rightful owner of the throne, his brother, and then he gives his wife back as well. He's like, yeah, you can, you can have her too. We'll just throw her in as part of the deal. So he does what's right. He shows love to his brother. Now, this love even intensifies because even as he's been king for even a short time, he has sort of this coalition that back him in Rome, and they come to him more than once, and they say, hey, dude, we liked it when you were in charge. We know a guy. We can kill off your brother, and you can have the throne back to yourself just like you want. But again, he had this intense love for his brother. And so he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to betray this brother that I love so much. And so he declined. And his brother reigned for about the next 13 years till he died. And then he rightfully took the throne and lived and ruled for another 20 years after that. So this love that these brothers have is where the name of this city comes from, the city of brotherly love. Then about 250 years after these two brothers are dead and gone, this man named John starts a church in this city of Philadelphia. He wants to spread the good news of Jesus as far as it can go, and so he starts this church in this town, and then years later, while he's on this island in seclusion by himself, he gets this vision of Jesus, and as part of this vision, Jesus gives him a message to this church in Philadelphia. So we're going to look at that message today. We're going to kind of work through it sort of verse by verse and uh, look at some principles that I hope we can apply to our church into our lives as Christ followers as well. So here is the message that Jesus has for this church. It's in uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse number 7. So if you have your Bible, you can go there. Also, last week, I did forget to upload the YouVersion Bible app. I had a lot of people, which is great, mention it to me. That means you're using it. So that means I'm going to keep doing it because it's great because it's there. So it's there this week. So if you have the Bible app, it's there for you as well. Here it is, Revelation 3, verse 7. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. So the first thing that we see here about this church is they are a church on mission. The church in Philadelphia is a church on mission. Jesus says, I see what you're doing. And so because of that, he says, I've opened a door for you that no one can close, a door of opportunity. It kind of reminds me of, you go back to the Old Testament early, early, early on, the story of Noah and the ark. If you read that story, God tells Noah to build this ark, and so he does. There's a great flood coming, and it does. And then as the rain starts coming, all the animals are in the ark. What's interesting is, who shut the door of the ark? Not Noah, not his sons, not some strong animals on a leash. It says, God shut the door of the ark. So he's using that same imagery here. What I I shut, no one can open. And what I open, no one can shut. And he says, I've opened this door of opportunity for you, this church in this city of Philadelphia. So Philadelphia historically was known as the gateway to the east. It is not the most eastern Roman city in the area. It's almost, but not quite. But it is one of the largest Roman cities in this far east as you get into Asia. And so they were known as the gateway to the east because they were huge on the travel trade. And so they would try to export not only their goods out to the east, but also their way of life. 
They're trying to spread their Western-influenced culture over to this uncultured, what they would call maybe savage East out in, out in uh, Asia. And so they had this huge opportunity as a culture to spread their culture this way. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to leverage your position for a purpose. He says, you're in a very strategic area. I'm going to use that to my advantage. Because as your government's trying to pump out your culture to the east, I'm going to try to pump out my son to the east. The message that will change their lives. He said, I'm going to use your position for a purpose. He says, I've opened this door of opportunity that no one can close. So the gospel can go to the ends of the earth. So Jesus wants them to be a strategic church. He wants them to continue in their mission because, again, they're placed in a, in a prime position to further God's purpose. Now, this is not unique just to this church at all. This is not just the mission of the church in Philadelphia, but it is, has been by far the mission of the church since the beginning. I'll read a very famous portion of Scripture here, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says this to his followers, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So again, he's starting there in, the same, in a similar way that, that Jesus starts in his letter to John. I'm, whatever I open can't be shut. Whatever I shut can't be open. Jesus says, I have all authority. I can I do what I want. All right. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This passage is known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. The church has one main job. Now, there are different ways to do that. There are different ways and methods to accomplish that, as we'll talk about here in a minute. But the main idea, the purpose of the church is to spread the gospel. The good news, what the gospel means, the good news about Jesus, that he will change your life and your eternal destiny. But what's important here is this word, go. That's the, that's the key word of this passage. So the great co-mission is really the great go mission. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, sit where you are, don't do anything, and it will just happen. If you just stay put and just pray really hard, my message will go forth. Nope. He says, you go into all the world. You go and make disciples. You go and do stuff, do things to further this message, further the work that I'm calling you to do. Go. It's a go mission. And so how we define that here at First Century, one of our three core values is we want to promote missional living. We are a church that strives to be missional. And we want to follow in the footsteps of this great go mission. So at, this is a core value. As a church, we're here to reach people. We're here to make a difference. That's why for us, outreach and community involvement, community engagement is so important. We try to do as much as we can in as many areas as we can to help further the gospel, to help change neighborhoods, to help change people's lives, to help change the atmosphere spiritually in our community. That's why even, from, even before we launched, we did several different outreaches in our community uh, with just the small group that we had at the time because that's the purpose, that's the mission is to go and preach the gospel, go and make a difference. And we'll talk more specifically about how, 
how we were able to do that uh, last year in our year in review here in a couple of weeks. So I won't give a lot of those details away this morning, um, but we were able to accomplish a lot last year. We were able to try some new things last year, um, able to reach some new people last year. And I'm very excited that we are doing what we can, like this church in Philadelphia, to reach people with the gospel. So we talk about missional living, but it might help if we define it for just a second. So there's two main keys, two main parts to this definition. Missional living is simply purposeful cultural engagement plus intentional relational connection. I know that's a mouthful, but I'll, we'll break it down for just a second. Here's what missional, we talk about what's being missional. What does that mean? Well, it's purposeful cultural engagement plus intentional relational connection. And I will tell you, even this week in preparing this message, I've been convicted uh, to, to do this better, to do this more, not to just talk about it, not to just pray about it, not to just say, let's, this is a good thing, let's rah-rah the troops, but hey, this is, this is on me as well. So here's what that means. Purposeful cultural engagement. We have to, and this, I'm talking to me here as well, maybe more than anybody else in the room, we, we have to avoid isolating ourselves or insulating ourselves. Like this right here, what we're doing, this this is great, but it's not missional because we're gathering. Now, that is biblical. We should do that, and I encourage you to be a part of that. It's going to help you, hopefully, to be more missional Monday through Saturday, right? So this is important, but this is not the missional part of the church. This is the gathering part of the church, the edification of the church. So this is not, in and of itself, the mission of the church, okay? So uh, going out, putting yourself out there with people, it may be uncomfortable. Uh, it may be new. It may seem risky. It may seem, oh, I don't know if I really want to, but it's the mission. Go and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. We can't make change if we're not out there to make it. Again, it doesn't just happen on its own. That's, now, could God have done that? I'm sure he could have. He wants to use people to further his purpose. He wants us to have a purpose and then fulfill it. So that means us going. It means engaging the culture, even though that may be strange or uncomfortable to us. And it also means this relational connection. We have to relate and connect with people, which takes time and it takes intentionality. Again, we have to make movement toward people to connect with them. We have to take the time and the investment of time to make that connection with people. We have to engage with even just our neighbors. Just being a good neighbor is a great first step to being a missional Christian, okay? Um, leveraging relationships to get to really important life topics, faith topics. That's what being missional is. I don't just want to be a good neighbor, but I want to be a good neighbor that then I can relate to my neighbors and help to share with them about how great God is, about how wonderful Jesus is. So it's leveraging those relationships on purpose for a purpose. Building relationships, even the places that we go to learn those people's names that we see at the coffee shop regularly, to get to know maybe things about them. Bridge those gaps. The more connection that we have with people and the more connections that we make with more people, the more effective we can be in living missionally. Engaging culture, which sometimes is weird. We don't want to do it, but we have to. And also making relational connections. That's what this is all about. Really, it comes down, the way I describe it is, to, as hard as, as this is for us, to see yourself as a missionary. Now, it's hard because, well, I'm just, I've always lived here, and this is just, it's just, I know, I'm not in a different culture. I don't have to learn a language. I don't have to learn, you know, things about the people around me because I kind of know how it works. So, but it's, if we can change our mindset into, it's a good bet that a majority of the people that you are around probably don't know Jesus, 
And so if we can have that mindset, and we'll talk about why here in just a minute, it will help us to live missionally. We want to be like Philadelphia and use our position on purpose for a purpose. God has you right where he has you for a purpose. He has you right where he has you at your job, in your neighborhood, in the part of town you live in, with your circle of influence and your friends. He has you there on purpose for a purpose. So whatever door he's opening for you, let's run through it. Let's impact people for the sake of the gospel. But that just naturally is not always easy. And then there are times where other people around us don't make it easy as well. That's the next verse we'll read, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. So he says, hey, you guys are doing great. You're doing wonderful. I love what you're doing. You're op- you're, I'm opening the door. You're walking through it. But here's the bad news, Revelation 3, verse 9. He says, look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Now, we mentioned this last week briefly. Let me just take a minute to explain what this is. What is Satan's synagogue? Is it like devil worshipers? No, it's actually people who would have claimed faith in God. They would say, yes, I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm a faithful follower of God. So there's two options here historically, and maybe even a mixture, but there's two options of what this group really is. The first option that's less likely is that there are people who are just culturally Jews. They don't follow the law. They don't care about the law. They're just ethnically, they belong to this group. And so, but they are oppressing this new group of Christians. Well, you don't fit in with how my ancestors did things, and so I'm going to make life really hard for you. I'm going to oppress you even to the point of persecuting you while claiming I have faith in God. And, they, and, and Jesus says here, they don't. They're not genuine. They're not real. Now, the second option that is more likely, which is even more scary, though, is that the literal synagogues there in Philadelphia are out to get this new group of Christians. Because consider where Christianity came from. It came from Judaism, right? So what what Christians are viewed as by first century Jews are a cult, they're viewed as, you're, you claim to be similar to us, but you, this is way off. God would never condone this. God would never bless this. This Jesus guy, I mean, yeah, he said he was one of us, but he also said he was God, and that doesn't jive with our beliefs. And so because you put faith in him, you guys are wackos. You guys have the Kool-Aid, and that's not, you know, we're not doing that sort of thing. So that's how Christians in the first century are viewed by a majority of Jewish people. So they are not accepted into the culture. They, are not, they do not get along really with the culture. Now the Christians may try to get along, but they are ostracized by the Jewish people of those communities. What makes it even more harsh is that the Jewish people, because of their history and heritage, they have certain liberties and freedoms from the Roman government uh, to worship. Now, because when you read about first century martyrdom, you don't read about any Jews getting martyred for Judaism. It's the Christians getting martyred for Christianity. There's a difference there. Because what's happening is these faithful followers of Judaism are conspiring and many times with the local government to rat out these Christians, to try to get rid of them. They are part of the persecution uh, of the first century here in some of these cities like Philadelphia. That's what Jesus says here in this one and in the city we talked about last week, Smyrna. So he's saying, hey, they're saying they're faithful followers, but if they were, they would not treat you this way. If they really love the law like they say they do, they would not behave this way. So this group, they can claim whatever they want, but their their life is showing something very different because they're persecuting people who are also my people. 
So that's what Jesus is talking about and what John is saying here is um, it's, it's kind of getting murky in the waters here. So here, let's bring it here to current day, though. As you try to live missionally, you might have methods that God gives to you that are unconventional, okay? You might reach people that most people would stay away from. You, you might have a calling on your life to reach people in a very unique way. And I would say, go for it. But here's the thing, not everybody else is going to say go for it. And sometimes, if not all the time, the majority of that, I don't know if I would do that, come from other Christians. Okay? That's what we're seeing here. People who claim to have faith are going to be the haters. So when you're doing things, so sometimes people would say, well, I would never do it that way. And I would say, that's fine. God's called them to do it that way, not you. But what what people sometimes mean when they say that is, you should not do it that way. That's what they're saying. I would never do that. I would never use that method. But what they mean is, you shouldn't do that. And And again, they're claiming the same faith that we have. But sometimes it's the point of more oppression on the mission that we have. And so as Amanda already referenced today, we're just really in sync today. So there's something, something special here going on. I thought about Taylor Swift. Haters gonna hate. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna shake it off. Shake it off, you know? It's like, dude, God's called you to your thing. Do your thing. God's called me to do my thing. I'm gonna do my thing in the way he's called me to do it. It may not be something you would ever do. He's not called you to do that. I'm not saying you should do it my way. I'm saying God's called me to do it my way. He wants me to reach people in a very unique way. He's positioned me for a purpose. I'm gonna walk in that purpose. He's opening doors. I'm gonna run through. He's cracked windows. I'm gonna slide my fat rear end through that crack and I'm gonna meet people where they need to be met and how they need to be met. So when the haters come, shake it off. And I would go further in that and say, here's the deal. Probably the more haters you have for the way you live missionally, probably a good sign. Because if there's no resistance, it probably means you're not really doing much. And so take that for what it's worth. So haters does not mean, oh, man, I should, I should probably maybe, maybe not do that. Man, here's, and it's the same thing with our church. I want us to take some risks on how we reach people. Like, I want us to think unconventionally how we can really get to core issues in our community. I want us to think about how can we do things that maybe other people haven't thought to do or haven't had the guts to do to reach people where they really are. Not to do it because, oh, every other church does that. Not to do it because that's how we've always done that in the past. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But what is God really calling us to do? We're, we're a unique church. We don't have to be like anybody else. So we can do what God's calling us to do. And if other churches and other people and other groups don't like that, just got to shake it off. Say, God's called us to this. You can do your thing in your way, in your spot. That's great. Uh, We'd love to partner with you on some things and make a huge impact. We don't have to be divided all the time with names or labels or denominations. That's that's not the point. But we want to do what God's calling us to do. And if there's haters along the way, just say, I mean, I'm, I'm going. Like, I'm going through the door. You can't. God's opened the door. He says nobody can shut it, so we're going to go through it. We're going to do maybe what no one else has ever thought to do, and that's okay. That's good. So even when we're under attack, we want to have that sort of mindset. So then let's read the next verse and then the first part of verse 11. Revelation 3.10 says this, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world, to test those who belong to this world. Then he says, I am coming soon.
So here we see sort of a peek into two areas of the future, the near future and the distant future. We see this view of the near future and the distant future. Let's talk about the near future for a second. So specifically to this church, the message of Jesus is, hey, there's going to be a great time of testing that's going to come. Basically, he's saying, you think you're facing it now, just wait. You think the opposition is heavy now, just wait. You think persecution is a big deal now, just wait. There's going to be a time of testing and pushing and pressing that will continue to come, and it will intensify in the months and the years and the decades to come. And we see that throughout really the second century of the Roman Empire. Christian persecution, off the charts. I mean, it's like literally for sport that Christians are killed. People pay money to come watch these people eaten alive or killed by trained gladiators. Like, it's a big problem. But Jesus promises this church something that he doesn't promise the other churches. And I want to focus on that for just a second. He promises them protection from this time of testing that will come. He says, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. He promises protection and safety. And we'll talk about here in just a minute how that came to pass, how we know he kept his promise. But first, let's get into the distant future to look at these, this verse in a different way. So there is a time that is still yet to come. And so the word testing that a lot of translations use is this word tribulation. So this word is used specifically for this church and this reason, but also when you read the rest of Revelation, you read about a time yet to come called the Great Tribulation, where the world begins to look like it did in the first and second century, where Christianity is pushed to the margins, where people are literally killed for their faith. So it's, there's a time, Revelation, if you read it, you're like, whoa, this sounds terrible. It is, okay? That's why it's called the Great Tribulation. It's, not, it's named on purpose, okay? It's just not good. So that's a time that is yet to come. And so there, there's even, you know, like the Antichrist comes during that time period and the false prophet. Christians are literally hunted down and killed. Like it's not, it's not the greatest place to be. It's not where we want to be. But that is yet to come. So the question, though, is do we have, does the current church in this distant future have the same promise of protection that this Philadelphian church had from their persecution? I would say yes. And the answer to that is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. Let's read these three verses really quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 says this. So we know this great tribulation in this time period is coming in the future. This is also going to happen in the future. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a command, commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Won't that be interesting? Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. So there is in the future this, this guarantee of a great tribulation, a time where it is no bueno to be a Christian anymore. Okay? Like, again, you think it's difficult now, just wait. Like you think it's hard now, just wait. But the promise that Jesus has is he will take his church from that as well. That's what we call, this is what we call the rapture of the church. So now there are differing viewpoints. They all have their points of emphasis uh, about when that will happen. There are some who say, well, we will live through part of the tribulation and then this event will happen. 
or we will live through the entire tribulation period, and then at the very end of all that suffering, then we'll be rescued in the rapture. However, uh, the official view of this church is that we are gone before the tribulation period happens. And that's based on this verse and many other passages in the New Testament. We, we believe officially the view of this church is a pre-tribulation rapture. And part of my argument is, well, why is he going to have us suffer for part of that and then take us out? Why, why would we suffer the whole? Th- What's the point of the post-tribulation rapture? If we suffer, 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 we don't escape anything, right? We, we're, all, we're all dead anyway. So, and then just the way it, the New Testament kind of works together in a 3D view, it, this view seems to be the most plausible. That before this great time of worldwide testing comes for those of the faith, those that are already faithful will escape through the rapture that time of tribulation that is yet to come. And then the tribulation will be for those that then, after that, put their faith in Christ. They're going to be tested in that great tribulation, okay? So here's the thing. Our hope is in the return of Christ. As followers of Jesus, that is our ultimate hope, is that he will return, and that he will return for his bride, for his church, for his followers that are faithful to him. And then the end will come. Then all of the nasty revelation stuff uh, will happen. And we'll just kind of maybe get to watch through a window up in heaven. I don't know how that's going to work. Uh, maybe I probably wouldn't want to watch that. Uh, change the channel, Jesus, you know. Um, but our hope is in the return of Christ. But more than that, our hope is in the imminent return of Christ. That it could happen at any moment. That's really been the expectation since Jesus left. Because when he ascends into heaven, the angel that, you know, that says the disciples are just looking up in the sky like, whoa, he just disappeared into the clouds. And they're just standing there. An angel comes down and says, hey, dudes, like, you know, the stuff he told you to go do, go do that. You know, stop looking. But he says he will come back just as he left. So as you read the New Testament, the expectation is we will see Jesus again very soon. And Jesus even says, I'm coming soon. But that means really two things. First, he, he, there is this promise of him coming soon. But also, the way in which he will come, the timing in which he will come, is going to be out of nowhere. So as you read other instances about this event of the coming of Christ, it's described as coming in the twinkling of an eye. So faster than light can reflect off your eyeball, that's how fast that event will happen. Another scripture that Jesus even tells is it's going to come like a thief in the night. He will come when no one's expecting, no one thinks it's going to happen. We're not, we're just kind of, you know, doing our thing and all of a sudden, boom, he comes back. It comes without warning. So that should give believers hope that I want that event to happen as soon as possible. And when you read the very end of Revelation, the very end there, that's the last thing John writes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That should be the hope for believers. It shouldn't be, well, I've got things to figure out and I want to live my life why would you want to live here any longer than you have to? Like, why would you want to endure anything that this world has to offer one second longer than you have to when the hope is eternal bliss with our creator? So he, he can come at any moment. He will come unexpectedly. So it gives us hope. However, as we go back to this missional mindset, it should also give us motivation. There is missional work yet to be done. There is work I still have to do to help reach as many people as I can with this message about this Jesus, the hope that he brings, the love that he is, the the forgiveness that he extends. 
there's work to do because there's a lot of people that are far from God and they're going to miss out on that opportunity. They're going to miss out on that moment of glory when they will see him face to face. So man, we got to be busy. We got to be reaching people and connecting with people and engaging culture in ways that we never thought possible uh, more and more every day because this should be our motivation. We should have a sense of urgency about if he really is going to come at any moment, man, I want to see as many people up there with me as I can. So I got to do my part. I got to do my thing. Whatever doors are open, I want to go through. Whatever windows are open, I want to go through. I want to reach people with the message of Jesus because it, it could, like time's ticking. We don't know when that's going to happen. And so we want to prepare as many people as we can for that coming. The last thing we'll talk about is the last three, two or three verses here in Revelation 3, this message to this church in Philadelphia. Uh, pick it up at the end of verse number 11. So Jesus says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So there's three closing promises here for this church, and I believe for any church, including us as well. The, the three promises here of future glory is what we're looking at. Uh, what is to come in the future, kind of the reward portion of every message that Jesus has for all these churches. The first one we, we talked about last week, so I'll skim over it very quickly. He promises a crown that no one can take away. He says, hold on to what you have, and you'll have the crown. We talked about it last week. That's for victors, for people that endure to the end. They, they win the race. They've run the race. They've won the race. They get the crown in the end. That's the first promise from God here about future glory. Uh, the, the second two that I'll list are sort of a couple things that cram together, but they belong together, even though they're separated in the text, okay? So the, the second promise here about future glory is he says, I will make my pillars in my new kingdom and i will write their new name on these pillars so historically this is what you would see in ancient cities you would see pillars in some sort of an archway or entryway to signify like kind of the city limits a huge structure with large pillars what you would see a majority of the time are names inscribed on these pillars they are usually either the founders of the city or the kings of the city or the prominent people to, that helped to build that city. So Jesus says, hey, you're helping to build something by being missional. You're helping to do something significant by living missionally, by reaching people for Christ. You're helping to build this kingdom. And he's, our spiritual inheritance, our spiritual promise is that our name's going to be etched there. Kind of like the Vietnam Memorial. I, I don't know if there's going to be like one of those in heaven where everybody's going to have their name to make sure they're in. I know there's a book of life with our name on it, but I'm wondering, I'm going to find my name. Where am I? Oh, wow, I'm next to this person. That's so cool. I'm going to take a selfie with that. I don't know if we're going to have selfies in heaven or not. Those are probably in hell, actually, so no. Um, but pillars, they're strong, they're foundational, they last, and we are helping to build that. Now, we're not doing it for the sake of saying, oh, look what I did, you know, look what I helped to do. No, that's just, that's just a blessing that God gives to us. Um, and so what's interesting here is as we kind of connect what we just talked about with the church lasting in Philadelphia, withstanding the pressure that is to come, What's been discovered in ancient ruins in this area where Philadelphia used to be, there's been discovered ancient ruins of a 12th century Byzantine church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. 
It's the oldest church that has ever been excavated in that region. So here's what that shows. That in the first century, when they're facing pressure and persecution, Jesus says in his letter, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, but I'm going to protect you. What we find here is that the church lasted another thousand years. Other churches wiped out. Other cities destroyed. Christians killed left and right. But this church lasted another thousand years. Jesus kept his promise to this church. And we have proof of that with these ancient ruins. And also it shows on the flip side of that, it's one of the I don't know how you'd say oldest, but it's one of the oldest churches up to the 12th century that we've discovered in that area, which also shows their window was wide open, like the door swung open for a thousand years and they walked through it. They had impact for that long. God protected them and they used their position for a purpose for that long a period of time. It's pretty cool. And here's why that's important. What the majority of the remains of that church are the pillars, Like, I can't make this stuff up. Like, Jesus knows what he's talking about here clearly, and he's saying things that we would have no idea. John has no idea. But a thousand years later, the remains, or two thousand years later, the remains of that church that are still there are the pillars. We have that same spiritual promise of being the pillars of this kingdom. And then the third thing that he promises here is this new city, this new Jerusalem. And it's kind of fleshed out later in Revelation. He describes uh, what it looks like to some degree. We have some images of what that will be like. And he says, here's what's important. He says, we won't have to leave the temple or the city. We won't have to leave. Now, for ancient Philadelphia, where they are positioned geographically, they are prone to earthquakes. So through their history, earthquake after earthquake devastated that city in that area. Actually, in 17 AD, Philadelphia was completely destroyed by a massive earthquake, like off-the-charts earthquake. So much so that the Roman emperor used a ton of funds to rebuild this gateway to the east. It had such an important value to, um, to the empire, they rebuilt this city. So here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, this kingdom that, I, that we are building, this kingdom that I will establish in eternity future will not crumble. It will not fade, it will not falter, it will not end, and you will never have to leave it. Because what would happen, especially after 17 AD, when this earthquake devastated this area, they rebuilt the city, but many of the people that had to escape never returned. They stayed out in different cities, and they, they were kind of refugees, and they just started over in Pergamum or Sardis or Thyatira, other cities around the region, because they didn't want to go back and risk everything getting crumbled all over again. So Jesus says, hey, this thing lasts. It is forever, and you get to be a part of that forever. You get to you have security in that. This new kingdom, this new temple that I'm preparing and building for you in, in the future is always going to be there. You don't ever have to leave. You don't ever have to fear because it is solid. It is a firm foundation. So as we close, let me just remind us. Let's be people on mission, people living on purpose, for a purpose, with purpose, to reach people who are far from God. And I want you to think outside the box, be creative. How can I really reach that person? How can I really impact that 
family? How can I really truly make a difference? Not just, you know, oh, I come to church and, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. That's great, but that's just like scratching the surface. What can I really do to impact people for the sake of the gospel? As a church, what can we do to really impact people with the good news of Jesus? What creative things will God unleash as we're just saying, hey, God, we're open. Whatever door you open, we're going to run through. We're not going to, you know, set up a committee to talk about, should we do that? Is God opening that door? I'm not sure. Let's, let's, think, let's pray. Let's, nope. Whatever door's open, let's run through the door. Whatever window's open, let's run through the window. Let's run through whatever opening God has for us to reach as many people as possible. Because what we know is he's coming soon, which is great, great. But for people that are far from God, we, we have to run through those doors for them so we can see them in this kingdom that is yet to come and worship God in this temple that is yet to come to live with those people that we help to kind of rescue from the fire, so to speak, in this new Jerusalem that is yet to come. That's the hope and that's our mission to go and reach those people with the gospel.